Nearly 70 years ago, British India was partitioned along mostly religious lines. Muslims in the newly created East and West Pakistan, Hindus, Sikhs and others in what remained of India. But of course it was never that simple. Ali Asani is professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic religion and cultures at Harvard University. In episode 4 of our special series of podcasts, Professor Asani talks about the distinctiveness of South Asian Islam then and now and the way in which political narratives emerged in the period leading up to partition. One of the things that I have, uh, that you see, I think, in the current discourses uh, about uh, the partition uh, and about how history is told in both India and Pakistan about the partition, but also about the history of the nation state and its emergence and how and what role religion is seen as being played in there. I would say there's a very reductive um, uh, perceptions of religion uh, and really an inability to engage with the big picture. So constructions of religion are very narrow, ideological, and um, and some of these narrow conceptions of religion are based primarily on what I think is a huge problem in South Asia, uh, and that is illiteracy about the nature of religion uh, and, that, um, uh, and how one thinks about religion. And some of it is, I think, is a product of colonial notions of what is religion. But then as the religion gets co-opted by the nation state, both in India and Pakistan, um, um, a more critical, let's say, a more critical uh, understanding about the nature of religion using the methods of the humanities and social sciences is totally, for the most part, just lacking in this country so that you just get this one dominant discourse of religion very often coming out from either the nation state or certain political parties. But people... Uh, on the whole, don't have the tools to engage critically with what is religion that we're talking about. And that's, and I think that is one of the problems, I think, even in thinking about the partition and the role of, of, of religion. So I want to say a little bit about this, the manifestations of this that we see, these manifestations of illiteracy about religion. And I'm talking about cultural and religious literacy and how it affects what we um, affects our perceptions on things. So some of them are, you know, at a basic level, religion very often is perceived of as just rites, rituals, and ceremonies. That religion is about people worship and things like that. Or religions are seen as embodied in text. So if, if you ask somebody about um, what is the essence of Islam or something, they'll quote you something from the Quran or something like that. But religion is seen in a very reductive way. It's just text. And as a result, religious traditions are often understood in very monolithic ways. There's no, as ideologies, and there's no attempt to understand that actually there's a great deal of diversity and spectrum of interpretation. This is in popular uh, understandings. And uh, 
you also get the emergence of this notion that religions have agency, that religions say and do things, which is one of the things. And of course, I have to mention, for example, uh, President Trump saying, I think Islam hates us. You know, but this thing that Islam says and does things, or Hinduism says and does things, right? It's part of not understanding critically the nature of religion. Um, and then, of course, the use of religion, again, in this very narrowly confined uh, understanding, to explain as the exclusive factor to explain the actions of an individual or a community and, of course, hold the community responsible for the actions of single individuals. And this has led to this, um, you know, constructions of history, especially with the partition, with things about religion becoming the exclusive defining element to explain the entirety of India's pre-British history. Historical explanations become mono-casual. From it was enough that a ruler was Muslim or Hindu to explain his conduct. No other variables were required to reach a historical understanding. Um, so this, you see, uh, you know, a single-dimensional perspective on individuals. They're stripped of all their other identities. The only identity that becomes important is the religious identity, and by privileging the religious identity above all other identities, um, you run into several problems. Um, so first, if you, uh, uh, it has issues, it, it affects the nature of democracy. So if you're afraid of your neighbor, who you perceive as different on the basis of religion, uh, and don't see any other commonality with your neighbor, it could be culture or language or ethnicity, and you just define somebody on the basis of religion, it affects the, the whole project of democracy because it cannot work if you're afraid of your neighbors. In a certain way, you know, the, again, sort of drawing a parallel to the modern situation in the, here in the United States, the fear and anxiety that is created by politicians on the notion of difference right, uh, affects the whole project. And of course, it effects, you know, it creates stereotypes, it dehumanizes, uh, and this dehumanization can, of course, have serious consequences. We've seen this uh, both in India and Pakistan, where certain groups get dehumanized. You get pogroms, you get uh, genocides, uh, and so on, and people are just uh, looked at just in the, uh, in the dehumanized way, just because they belong to a certain religion. And the marginalization of minorities also then starts, you know, creates this whole issue of radicalization, which can then undermine the nation state itself. And, and I think number five is also very important because when you have illiteracy about the nature of religion, it, it's, it's the perfect breeding ground uh, to, uh, to create the rise of extremisms and fundamentalisms, groups that you can get demagogues explaining to people that this is what your religion says, but if people don't have the critical tools to understand what's going on, they're easily misled and they think, well, this is what this is. What this is. Uh, 
So, and of course, it also leads to serious failures in policy. So this illiteracy about religion and culture has major consequences at different, different levels. Uh, and I think this, um, this quote by Amartya Sen also become, plays, becomes very important here because this single, uh, he talks about a single dimensional categorization of human beings. Um, which combines haziness of vision with the increased scope for the exploitation of that ha haze by champions of violence. And to a certain extent, this whole, you know, the partition, uh, the dehumanization of Muslims and Hindus and Sikhs and so on, um, and the total breakdown in understandings uh, and also cultural ties and linguistic ties and ethnic ties between these different groups, uh, you know, uh, resulted in one of the greatest tragedies of the, of the 20th century. So, so just a little bit about how I think about what a religiously literate person should be thinking about when you think about religion. So number one, I think it's very important that we think about religion uh, as a cultural construct. So even faith-based notions of religion are influenced by their embeddedness in political, social, economic, but also literary and artistic contexts. And notions of religion are very closely tied to these different contexts. And as these contexts change, people's ideas of religion change. And so ideas of religion are constantly being formulated and reformulated as the political, economic, social context changes, which means that when we are talking about um, uh, um, anything that has to do with religion, we have to look at it from multidisciplinary perspectives and also understand its multivalent social-cultural influences. So very often you cannot think about religion in isolation, basically. This idea that religion operates in a world of its own without any connection to the political, the social, the economic, and so on, uh, would be misreading the nature of religion. And it also talks about you know, this idea of, because religion is embedded in so many different contexts, you're going to have diversity of expressions. Um, and that diversity, so thinking about religious traditions as spectrums of interpretations and ideas rather than monolithic ideologies, or talking about religious traditions as having communities of interpretation rather than saying there's a Muslim community and a Hindu community, right? And this notion that religious traditions that religious communities are monolithic, right, is again part of what I would say is one of the characteristics of not understanding the nature of religion. So, so this is, so given that if religion is embedded in so many complicated ways in all these different contexts and you have all these diverse expressions, the next question we should be thinking about is how and why do certain experiences 
and certain expressions come to be privileged over others if you have this diversity and and what role do elites and access to power um, uh, play in molding representations of religion so for example there could be certain representations of religious experience that belong for example that you might find in the villages uh, and those expressions, because they're not connected with elites, will remain sort of silent, unknown, but actually can tell us a lot about many different things. But because we focus on the representations of the elites, we tend to ignore, certain, so certain interpretations get marginalized because they're, they're, asso they're not associated with people in power. And also this tension that you find uh, between, if you think about religious traditions as having a spectrum of interpretations and beliefs, you can have very, when it comes to the issue of difference, engaging with difference, uh, cultural difference, religious difference, ethnic difference, you can have many different, you can have a spectrum of opinions in a religious tradition related to difference. You can have very inclusivist and embracive things that difference is fine, it's part of human nature and so on. And we, Or you can get very exclusivist ones. And so, so again, so when we're talking about religion influencing things, we need to be able to talk about, well, which, which interpretation of religion are we talking about here? So I want to give you an, an example of something related really to the to the partition and uh, I'm just going to read from uh, this is a, a piece that I, I wrote several years ago uh, and I think people would be in uh, so I'm just going to read from this book in 1947 in the midst of many horrific communal riots and massacres unleashed by the partition a miracle happened at the railway station of Arifwala, a small town in the Punjab. A train carrying Hindu and Sikh refugees fleeing communal riots in Rawalpindi had stopped at the station on its way to the Indian border. At the station, it was met by a mob of angry Muslims incited by hate-filled invectives from local mullahs. The mob was getting ready to attack the train in revenge for Muslims who had been killed by Hindus and Sikhs. So this was that horrific, you know, these trains would go back and forth. Suddenly, the angry mob became quiet. A Sikh, apparently under the influence of opium, was hanging out from one of the windows of the train, singing verses from from one of the most famous epic poems of Punjabi literature. Here, composed in 1776-77 in a village mosque by Varish Shah, a poet who has been sometimes called the Shakespeare of the Punjab. Here is the most widely recited poetic version of the popular Punjabi legend narrating the tragic and illicit affair between here, the daughter of a local chieftain, and her beloved Ranja. And of course, 
this has been of course made into a Bollywood movie so but the verses that the opium intoxicated Sikh was singing were from a section of the epic in which the poet criticizes the corrupt and hypocritical mullah for denying Ranja hospitality in the mosque after he had fled from his family to be with here. Hearing these verses, the mob suddenly came to its senses and refused to ob obey the instructions of the mullah to attack the train. Literally saved by verses of poetry, the train left the station unscathed. As Subha Singh, a witness, remarks, his, half, his eyes half closed, the opium addict sang away, and hatred turned into fellow feeling. Varishah's words were working a miracle. The soul of the Punjab was, was speaking through Varishah's soul. Clearly, Varishah's poetic rendition of the Hiran, Hiranja romance expressed and symbolized through its popularity and its content a fundamental ethnic and ideal cultural unity shared by Punjabis, all Punjabis, irrespective of religious affiliation, but now lost in, in, in the modern Punjabs. It was the recognition of this unity and the common humanity that saved the fleeing Hindu and Sikh refugees from, the, from a cruel fate. Now this incident uh, provides a very moving and dramatic testimony to a manifestation of religion because this poetry that he was singing is not just folk poetry in Punjabi, it's an epic. It is really, it's a mystical romance and it's told from a Sufi perspective where it's talking about how Hir and Ranja become symbols for the human soul longing for God. So it has, a, it has a mystical underpinning in there. And a lot of the poetry that you will find in the Punjab, in Sindh, and so on, has, especially coming from the Sufi sort of things, has theology fused within an artistic performative context. This is, in fact, the way in which Islam has been understood and transmitted at a mass level in large parts of India and Pakistan. It's not the ideological. This is sort of the Islam of the masses. And so in a certain way, you can say that here is an expression of religion performed through this, you know, this artistic, uh, artistic traditions that was able to humanize, or let's say rehumanize, groups that had been dehumanized by ideological nationalist rhetoric. And it was a very powerful, very powerful moment. All right. But what is interesting, you don't, this, 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 this expression of religion, which is so powerful, and in a way, I think what the, you know, at a mass level, you know, is so prevalent, in South Asia, uh, is not when we when we talk about religion in South Asia, this is totally marginalized. 
it's dismissed as folk or not sophisticated enough because it's just the village culture. It's, it's marginalized by the elites. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. I'll give you uh, another example of this kind of uh, the practice of Islam um, that you find in another context here, again, connected with the, um, uh, uh, with the, I would say, very ecumenical center. Uh, that is the dargah of uh, Muhyiddin Chishti in Ajmer. So Muhyiddin Chishti, uh, disciple of a uh, of a Chishti master, was sent. Uh, according to legends, he was sent. He had uh, while he was on pilgrimage in Mecca, uh, he was sent to India by the prophet who appeared to him in a dream, and he came to Rajasthan, where he first went to Lahore. He paid his respect to Hujviri and then the the, the great center of Lahore. And then he came to Ajmer, and he settled in Ajmer. And uh, I bring up this because of a re recent experience that I had taking a group of Harvard alumni from the Harvard Business School uh, on a trip to India. And I themed, the, I looked at this trip. It was mostly North India, but it was uh, emperors and Sufis and really looking at the Mughal emperors and the connections with different Sufi masters. And so in the context of all of this, we visited this particular shrine. And it was a very interesting experience because I knew the, uh, I know the, the Sajjad Nusheen of the shrine, and I told him I was bringing this group uh, from Harvard to this shrine. And so we got a nice welcome and you know, then he started talking about, before we went into the shrine itself, we were sitting in the courtyard, and he's, he's, he says a little bit about the Chishti order and their understanding of Islam. And it's all based, he said, the most important thing for us, the highest form of worship for us is serving the poor and the needy. And feeding the poor is, is in fact, for us the most important act of devotion. And this is why it doesn't matter where they come from. And this is why this is such an ecumenical space. So people come here from all classes, but they also come here to be blessed. And so he said, all right, let's go into the shrine. And I'd made an arrangement with, um, uh, with the Sajjad and Nasheen that usually when you go into the shrine, there's a chadar, uh, a sheet that you take in and then you cover the shrine. And so we took this chadar, it was in a big basket, um, and the Sajjada Nasheen told the group that this is a very big piece, uh, so I'm going to ask you to stretch it out, and all of you hold different corners, ends of it, but go under the chadar, and then I'll recite some prayers, and then we will lay it down on the, uh, on the tomb. And while people were holding up this chadar, um, and he was reciting prayers, uh, he was saying it in Urdu, then somewhere in Arabic, and he was translating into English. Then all of a sudden, I mean, this, this the the tomb itself it's very it's very crowded, but but filled with roses and jasmine and perfume and this kawali singing going on. So it was a very sens sensory experience being in there. And so I just closed my eyes and I was just taking in all these sensory experiences. 
And while we were in the midst of this, the Sajjada Nasheen, you know, told me in Urdu, uh, look, they're crying. And I opened my eyes, and sure enough, everybody in the group had tears in their eyes. And I thought that was, you know, it was an interesting experience. We put the chadar down. We went out uh, into this, uh, you know, outside the dirga. Uh, uh, we said our goodbyes. Nobody said a word. Not a single word about this experience. The next day, in the bus as we were traveling to the next destination, one of the persons on the on the trip was a head of a, 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 a huge a corporation, an American corporation, came and sat next to me. And he said, there's a marketing problem here. And I said, what's the marketing problem? And he said, I thought I was well read about Islam. I didn't know anything about this. Millions and millions and millions of people go here. This is a site of faith. And the people, the way they they, they, they serve the poor, the needy, they see it as part of their faith. So why is it that I don't know about this particular expression of Islam? Why is it that I only know the ideological expressions? There's something wrong here. This is, this is what he, you know, this is what he saw was the marketing problem, right? You can understand where, you know, what he was thinking. So. I thought that that was very interesting, and it's this question of perceptions. Now, at a popular level, of course, this is a site where Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs, they mingle. There have never been riots at this place. You know, there's a common culture, uh, and then, of course, there are uh, ritual practices, but also music and poetry and the fusion of theology with music, and also you know, a whole range, one can talk a lot about what goes on at these shrines. But here you're getting this, again, this space where you are not dealing with religion as ideology of difference. You're not really dealing with religion as, you know, some sort of an ism. You're talking about religion as experience. You know, done, of course, within this poetic, artistic mode which was interestingly, I think, the same thing which happened with Varisha at that train station. Um, so what I would say, and this is something that a scholar of Islam who's been, who talks about rethinking how in the academy we tend to think about Islam, and then this, of course, is that he says that, Muhammad Arkun, he says, that he said the Islam of the tr of the believers, the Islam is it's experienced by believers as their relation, as the faith relationship between themselves and God, which is really the Islam of the masses. Uh, that's embedded in the arts, and in poetry, and with that ethical and moral frameworks that are come with that. That has been rendered silent, even though it's got a voice. I mean, there's performance, but it's been. It's rendered silence in discourses about Islam. And instead, you know, understandings of Islam are, are monopolized by these ideologies of revivalism, identity, discourses of power, orthodoxy, hegemony. This is what he calls 
the loud Islam. You know, the Islam whose voices are amplified in political, social, and cultural spaces, including popular media. And if if there's any acknowledgement of these this silent Islam, the Islam of practice, it's seen as ent- either as entertainment or it's seen as folk, not sophisticated, uh, and dismissed from discourses about about Islam. And it's and it's true you see this in the academy as well. There's a certain bias as to what gets represented, maybe directed maybe as a result of. Uh, concerns about Islam and security and ideologies of uh, reform, revival, and so on. But there's this there's this bias in understanding. But uh, this incident that I mentioned at this Arifwala station shows the power, actually, of this what Arkun calls the silent Islam, to to create change. And one thinks about that if in the in the period of partition, we hadn't had the elitist interpretations of Islam dominating, right? We would have had a very different discourse.